Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Founder Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Wu. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing exceptional individuals with the Founder Spirit, ranging from social entrepreneurs, tech founders, to philanthropists, elite athletes, and more. Together, we'll uncover not only how they managed to succeed and face the multiple challenges, but also who they are as people and their human story. Joining us today is Nathan J. Anderson, founder and CEO of Scantrust, an enterprise software scale-up, which he founded in early 2014. Prior to Scantrust, Nathan served as the vice president of corporate development at Fushi Copper Weld, a Chinese-American wire and electrical cable company, where he drove its fundraising and cross-border acquisitions totaling over $350 million, including a successful listing on the NASDAQ. Nathan is also the founder of a boutique investment and advisory firm focused on China's clean tech industry, a director at the Bruce J. Foundation in the United States, and advisor to the Cadavita Foundation based in Colombia. Nathan graduated from the Middlebury College in the United States, where he played NCAA basketball. Welcome, Nathan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jennifer. Great to be here. I've been really looking forward to this for some time now. I believe you started playing basketball at the age of 12, and then you continued all throughout college at Middlebury. In 2014, you became the 14th player in the school's history to ever score over 1,000 points, and the first to do so since six years earlier. Maybe you were too young to realize at the time, but looking back now, how do you think basketball shaped you as a person? Wow, yeah, sports have definitely been a big uh, part of my life. It's a, it's a good question. And impressed you found that uh, the statistics on the thousand points. Well, well done there. But yeah, so you know, as long as I can remember, I've been playing competitive sports, uh, basketball included. And and funny enough, my my first word was actually ball. <laughs> so my my parents tell me, um, and uh, my dad was a fanatic. Uh, in terms of sports, so I, you know, no doubt before I even have memory, I was constantly watching Boston Celtics games and Boston Red Sox game, like all, all things Boston. Um, I was raised on, and you know, as long as I can remember, I've been part of team sports. I think even before twelve years old, um, and specifically basketball. Basketball was one of the earliest uh, team sports I played, and certainly the longest. I, I played team sports with that continuously, uh, competitively through college. Uh, and even to this day, I still play pickup basketball. So it's been a, a huge part um, of of my life, you know, from early ages, even, even to now as, as an outlet. And um, without a doubt, just consciously and, and subconsciously, especially when I was younger, has shaped who I am. And, you know, I think there was a dynamic about the team sports that I always liked. I'm a very uh, extrovert person. Uh, I enjoy interactions with other people, any respect. But with team sports, you have, you know, on basketball, it's you got your 12, 12 team members. And on baseball, it's a little more, you know, 20 plus uh, members of the team. And so you have this this community that you're, you're part of that uh, both, you know, during the game, but certainly much more so even outside of games during practice, um, uh, you know, outside of practice that you spend a tremendous amount of time with and build really deep um, special relationships with. And I think that 
uh, you know, reflecting back on it, I probably didn't think about it as much at the time, but looking back at, you know, the type of person I am, I think that has, uh, ultimately what's driven me <laughs> to, to team sports is that, uh, innate, um, you know, desire within me to, to be around and other people and associate with them. How did the losses in sport help you build your resilience? Well, in sports, even when you're Michael Jordan, you have losses. And um, you know, I think that's one of the funny things about sports uh, is that, you know, even a good team, maybe you're only winning or a great team, you're winning six out of 10 times. Uh, in, ba- in baseball, which I used to play in, you know, a really good batting average, they would say is 300. That means you're only getting a hit three out of 10 times. You're, you're failing seven times. And I think, you know, sports have a really powerful lesson there in that you will constantly be faced with failure on a daily basis, whether it's a missed shot that you're taking in basketball or, or certainly more impactful, a loss that you have, you're constantly being faced with that, this adversity. But at the end of the day, there's, there's the next shot you have to take. There's the next game you have to play. And so you have to be able to deal with those failures, with those losses and learn from them and essentially wipe it out of your mind and start with a clean slate during that, that next game, that next shot you're, you're going to take. And, uh, it also, I think builds a confidence that even when you lose, um, or miss a shot, the quote of famous Sparky Anderson quote, you know, each time you lose, you just get closer to your next wind. Uh, and, and that's the kind of mindset that I, started to grow out of um, playing team sports, both in my individual performance and, and then the team performance and creating that mindset, that positive mindset, no matter what the challenge or adversity you're facing, that you're going to be able to get through it. And then, you know, whether it's, uh, you call it an insanity or not, that you're going to be able to succeed eventually, uh, you know, it certainly was instilled to me through, through sports. I really like that comparison with team sports. Like you said, as an entrepreneur, you're constantly facing adversity, but somehow you've got to find that resolve to move forward, that drive to continue. But in team sports, there are other people involved. Even though you yourself are confident that you're going to get through it all, how do you motivate the other team players to get on board and to potentially take back the game? There's multiple dynamics to that. Um... Of course, team is, is made up of individuals and each individual is unique. So, you know, whether it's a coach communicating to your teammates or a teammate communicating to your peer, um, you have to take into account the, the individual um, uh, as well in terms of how you might communicate something specific to an individual. But it ultimately, I think, is something that builds across a team over time in terms of that confidence that maybe the first time you're faced with such a situation, uh, there's some uncertainty, some even doubt that that creeps in. Um, but what happens over, you know, playing many years, and I, I was lucky with the, the, the group that I was playing through high school that we probably played, you know, in total and aggregate, almost 70 plus years together, both during high school and then during summer. So I mean, we literally had hundreds, if not thousands, of games together. And so you're, you're faced with these scenarios. And once you pull it off one time, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to pull it off the next time, but you know, it's possible from doing it yourself or even seeing that it's been done by other teams. 
What characteristics would you say a team must have in order to have that fighting spirit? I find that the teams I've been on where there's a strong confidence and trust within the teammates, when you're faced with of a situation that looks perilous, that team has trust and the confidence in each other it makes a huge difference in the mindset that you have when faced with, with such adversity. To use another team sports analogy, how does building that trust and confidence in the team then translate into the startup culture? I think my belief in startup culture is the same of for business, uh, any business or, or any environment where you have multiple people trying to achieve or goals together. Ultimately, you need to have relationships which are built off, off of trust, where you feel that other people have your back, especially in a startup. A startup in many ways has parallels to a basketball team I've been talking about in that you're you're constantly facing highs and lows. Some days at a startup where you're like, wow, we are, you know, we're, we, you know, I feel like the king of the world, right? Like, wow, it's just so amazing what we've, what we're creating and what we've done. Like, you just feel, wow, this is, you know, you can't be higher. And then you, you can have the lowest of lows. Like, why the F did we, did we, we ever think we could do this? Oh, you know, you, whether it's a, you lose a, a customer project or, or something happens, there's a bug in the software, whatever it may be, you know, there's a million things that can happen. Um, and, and sometimes those feelings can happen in the same hour, right? And so, you know, you have to build this resiliency and you and ultimately, yes, you as an individual can be resilient, um, but if the collective group and the team doesn't have that resilient uh, mentality together, it's, it's never going to get there. And so that all starts with trust uh, in, in my book. And, you know, I think that's what we, we tried to create at, at Scantrust. I'm sure we could, you know, we, we've, I think we've done a pretty good job of it. <laughs> we've been through some highs and lows, certainly. You were there for some of them, Jennifer. Um, and ultimately, we were able to, to get through them, um, not because of any individual, but certainly because of the team. Nathan, speaking of collective resiliency, as you call it, why do you think it's so important for a startup to have that strong bond? I think most people join a startup not just because of the paycheck. Certainly, there's a, a paycheck there, um, and and maybe even some stock options to that you can dream about turning into uh, a nice uh, big bonus one day. Uh, and that that's certainly there, right? We all need uh, money to, uh, to to function in this society. I think people are are joining because a startup usually uh, because they believe in the mission and they believe in the goals that you're trying to accomplish. Especially when it's just an idea and you don't even have revenue yet, things are far from perfect. And so like, you know, as I was saying before, you're constantly going to be faced with these challenges. And if you don't have that feeling of camaraderie where everyone feels aligned and that everyone's pulling in the same direction, it's really easy to get down on yourself or, or down on um, what you're trying to accomplish when, when the lows come, inevitably when the lows come. I think you're absolutely right about that. Now switching over to a slightly different topic. After you graduated from university, from Middlebury College, you made an unusual choice to make a living for a year by playing poker. I'm very curious as to what brought you to that experience. You know, so after I, I graduated school, um, I had a, a friend who 
lived in uh, California. I graduated from my school was in Vermont. So, and I helped him drive across country. And, and during the time we did that, uh, you know, we, we stopped at a few casinos along the way in New Orleans first. And then certainly once we kind of got out in Colorado, Nevada, and uh, I, you know, I made some money um, playing uh, Texas Hold'em uh, poker. And it, it might not run us, but, you know, so when I went to school from 2000, 2004 was when, you know, it was really the first time most people had really high speed internet. And at this time, the regulators weren't really in control of what was going on. And so, you know, everyone had Napster on their computers and you just downloading music or torrents for, for movies and, and songs for free. And at that same time, online poker became a really big thing, specifically in college. And so I, I spent many an hours playing online poker. You know, it was really unregulated. Anyone could put in money, anyone could play at that time. And then during this road trip, um, this three what was ended up being a three month long road trip uh, across uh, from Vermont to, to California. I started to play in person as well, and was applying these skills uh, and approach that I had taken online. And it turned out I was pretty good at it, um, applying the, kind of this technical math based skills that I was doing online to with being in person uh, with people and observing them and. Uh, yeah, it was uh, I was uh, making enough money at least to be kind of like a quasi ski bomb out in in Truckee and and, and skiing and having fun and skiing and whenever I needed money, just popping over to Reno to to have uh, to to make some scratch um, playing poker. What is a day in a life as a poker player like? Did you play every day? I, I didn't play every day. There are professionals who, of course, do play, probably play every day um, and take it very much more seriously than I did as a craft and, and have, a, you know, are, are making a living doing it. I was I was more doing it as a way to, uh, you know, you know, that working for the weekend, if you will. So I mean, I, I would go several days or even a week without playing um, and just skiing and having fun and traveling around uh, and then kind of once my bank account got low I would go and play with these these epic grinding out grinds um at the casino I'm curious what was the longest that you ever sat at a poker table you know I think the longest I went was I would just sit down I sat down at a table for something like 36 hours straight um when I went at it I went at it really hard um, but it wasn't necessarily something I was doing every day what was that like sitting at the poker table for 36 hours straight a lot of patience so you know, there, there's different styles to playing in poker and and mine was one where i just kind of knew the ratios of or you know tried to know as best as possible the ratios of any outcome that could happen based off the cards i had in my hand based off the cards that were showing on the table um and i would play a very tight conservative game which mean you know which means you're you're not playing every hand i mean you're folding many different hands and so it it, it you know at least the style that i was playing required a tremendous amount of discipline uh, a credible amount of patience over a, a very long period of time and then of course a certain level of endurance you know to be able to sit there um, for 36 hours straight i didn't have a problem with it. it it worked well for for me and my personality and when i started poker i wasn't wasn't like this i was much more impulsive i'd make bets you know feel like you're playing a game but i i definitely learned uh patience and the art of timing you never know anything can happen the next card that flops over in poker could 
could totally mess up the statistics because nothing's a hundred percent. But uh, it, it taught me patience, and it ta- taught me, you know, in terms of variability of when to make the the big bet. I think Kenny Rogers said, "Know when to hold them and know when to fold them." <laughs> that he did. <laughs> that he did. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of truth in that statement, and I think that also has has seeped into you know how I run ScanTrust in the business as well. And you're you're constantly operating under imperfect data. You know, you're trying to decrease the risk you have to as close to zero as possible, which of course is always the desired outcome. And if you wait to get perfect data, which maybe doesn't even exist. But to get there, often you spend too much time. And, you know, one of the greatest strengths a startup has over its competition is speed. And you need to be able to use that speed and agility um, to move faster than the others. Uh, whether, you know, there's a whole fail faster mantra, et cetera. But yeah, yeah, you're constantly making decisions with imperfect data or data that's not 100%. And you need to be comfortable um, with that and, you know, uh, have the confidence in your to double down on that bet, depending on the bet, if it's a a failure or not, uh, to be able to change course as quickly as possible. What about what about the skill to read people when you're playing poker, though? I don't know if that was just uh, in an innate talent that I had with me that developed over the years from many things beyond other than poker or, or something that I developed while playing poker, you know, but, but ultimately, you know, I think one, one skill I've always had is, uh, that that's helped me, uh, it, both in poker, but in business is more listening to people and really spending the time to, to listen to them, whether that listening be body language um, or their, their verbal language. Um, and, and then trying to just, you know, put yourself in their shoes um, and, and understand where they're coming from. So after you ended your amateur poker career, you continue your wanderlust and you went to China in 2005. Coming from the U.S. and growing up in Vermont, what was it like for you when you first landed there? I guess this was your first trip to China. It was probably it was my first trip outside of North America and in Australia. But yeah, it was about as distant as you can get from Vermont. You know, there's probably more people in the Beijing airport than all of Vermont. Probably. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, yeah, it was it was it was definitely a shock, and it was definitely different. But I honestly don't remember anything more than just being excited. Uh, you know, and I think uh, I've always had a, a curiosity to to learn things, um, you know, and, and sometimes maybe too many things, you know, <laughs> without enough focus. And because it was so different, each and every day, each and every interaction that I had was something new. Um, something to be curious about, something to to learn um, about and, and to experience. And so, you know, I think ultimately that is what really uh, drew me into to China probably that and, and made me en- enjoy it so much. And originally supposed to be six months, I ended up staying uh, 12 years uh, living in China. Or, yeah, it's just what it's such a fascinating place. Still is. You're hired as the first foreign employee at Fushi. Fushi back then was a small company based in Dalian, which is a second tier city in China, just a few hours 
by plane ride north of Beijing. How did you become involved with the company initially? Maybe let's take a step back there before I get in. I mean, to give context, you know, I went over to China to basically backpack and teach English. So I was not get, I did not get sent there some on an expat uh, package. I was not, you know, there seeking a career per se. Opportunity more or less came my way, and you know, I ended up in Beijing in you know 2005 2006 uh, range, and Beijing at that time. And for many years after that, it was kind of the opposite of, of New York City, to quote Frank Sinatra a song, you know, uh, where he says, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere uh, about New York City. Uh, well, Beijing at the time was kind of the opposite in that is if, if you can't make it here, you can't make it anywhere. At least that's how I looked at it, because it was just um, it was a few years after China had joined the World Trade Association and it was just going through incredible growth and there just was not enough people uh, uh, around to, you know, to across all these companies, both foreign and 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 local Chinese companies that were, were growing at breakneck speed um, and needed talented people to to come in and um, to help them on their their journey. And so, you know, very quickly, you know, when I saw this and this happened to not just myself, but many other um, expatriates in, in China is you constantly found yourself rubbing shoulders both with, with expatriates or, or or local people who were doing very interesting things could be at a, a a table in in beijing and i'll be you know with backpackers and english teachers or students and expats or you know the ceo of caterpillar china whatever you know you could all just be around each other and you're constantly getting exposed to opportunity and that's really ultimately how um you know just through personal connections that I was meeting by being in, in Beijing, got introduced to this company at the time. It was called Fushi Guoji, which was Fushi International. Um, that was this fast-growing uh, industrial technology company that was growing so fast and, and needed a lot of money for capital expenditures as well as buying copper and, and uh, steel aluminum raw materials. They needed a tremendous amount of cash to um, to grow the business. And at that time, it was really hard to find that level of cash for a, a local Chinese business. I mean, there was, the, there was the, the bank loans were about a year, you had to pay them back in the year and there were high interest, which didn't work for this business. The waiting list to go public in Shanghai or Hong Kong was several years. And so they decided on a path to go public in the US. Um, and they needed, they, I guess, you know, they needed an English speaker <laughs> to help them on that journey to supplement their existing team. And that's how I, uh, I originally, I was totally unqualified for the job I got uh, shoved into. I made a lot of mistakes, um, but, but ultimately uh, they, they brought me on board and, and trusted me um, to, to help them with that journey. What was the road to a NASDAQ IPO like for a local Chinese company? back in the mid 2000s it was a, a very chaotic journey i would say i mean we were we were the first company out of dalian and i think of all of liaoning province so you know province in china is like a state um in in, in the u.s and it's a quite quite large one to ultimately successfully go public in in the u.s and and list on on nasdaq um and it was chaotic. I mean, at the time, I was the only non-Chinese uh, employee in the company. You know, there's probably close to 500 people in the company, a lot of those manufacturing, um, you know, in, in, in production. And, you know, 
for me at the time, you know, I, I had never done this journey before. Like I said, I was completely unqualified for, for, for what was going on, uh, there. And then also, you know, it was completely new to the whole, to the whole team, uh, and, and even new to, to NASDAQ in a way to have these, you know, Chinese companies, um, be listing on, uh, on, on the NASDAQ. And so every step of the way was something new. Uh, every step of the way was a challenge of, of trying to figure out, okay, how to go about this best, who, who to trust in, in terms of advisors, uh, either paid or non-paid, you know, mentors to, to, to make it happen. Um, and, uh, you're, you're constantly making, once again, back to the theme of making decisions based off imperfect data to move things forward um, and, and just trying to move along the best you can and ch change course when you, when you do make a, a misstep along the way. Um, but it was absolutely exhilarating, the experience at the end of the day. You played an instrumental role in taking the company public, going on roadshows and talking to all the investors and then eventually becoming its director of investor relations and driving subsequent, you know, secondary offerings. So not having had any related prior experience, aside from grinding at the poker table for 36 hours straight, was it intimidating for you to be representing a public company in your late 20s? Oh, sorry, early 20s. Well, early 20s. Yeah, without a doubt. And um, I remember to this day, the, the first time I, I pitched Fushi International, I was probably a few weeks on the job, um, green behind the ears, didn't understand the game at all. And our CFO at the time, um, uh, a Chinese national who had previously been handling all the, the street things and said, hey, I need you to go to Shanghai. There was some investment bank was doing a roadshow there and you're going to give a presentation about Fushi um, and, and then sit there and ask questions. And he told me the day before. Um, so I showed up there and I, I stayed up all night practicing the pitch and the template that he gave. And I, I did a pretty good job uh, of the presentation, but then, uh, Q and a came about and I totally flopped on the first question. And then all these investors, like, it was just like sharks with blood in the water. And I just really got beat up. Um, they were, they were, and it, it was not a great showing and I was quite frustrated, disappointed and, and embarrassed about it. And, and at the time, several shareholders of Fushi, um, called up our CTO and was like, why the hell do you got this young kid totally inexperienced there doing that? And, um, you know, I think I was fortunate enough where, um, my, my boss at the time who was re report, reporting to the CFO had a belief in me and, um, he definitely you know, gave me some shit for, for not performing, but at the same time gave me the confidence and gave me the, um, the, the independence to, to go out there and, and improve. And, uh, much like starting ScanTrust, I made a lot of mistakes, but I tried not to make a mistake twice. And, uh, I constantly was reaching out. I was never embarrassed to ask a question to someone that I didn't know the answer to, to try to figure out something. And at, at that time I was so green behind the ears that I, I had, uh, I had a lot of things I need to figure out. And so, you know, I think you make your own luck uh, in a way. And it was intimidating at the time, but I also had the belief that if I put the time and effort in, I could succeed. Is that is that what it means to you, the founder spirit? Having the belief in yourself that you would ultimately succeed? 
I think you have to be a little bit crazy. You have to be a little bit of uh, not have a perfect grip on reality because if you try to look at it too logically, you think about why would I ever start this or why would I be in this position? You know, how could I ever succeed? And so you kind of have to look through a, a different uh, tinted colored glasses. China, I think, also helped shape me because living in China, nothing was easy. Nothing was impossible. And, you know, if I think with that type of mindset, um, it, it can really help you get through these times. And, and ultimately, um, maybe you don't get out of those challenges and failures as fast as you would like, um, but it can help you get through to the other side. The good times are never as good as you think they are, and the bad times are never as bad, and that you, we, you know, ultimately will, will, will find a way through this. This episode is brought to you by Neons Deeper Than Beauty. Neons is a science-based Swiss luxury skincare and nutritional supplement brand focused on activating the body's natural ability to rejuvenate and regenerate for a more vital, useful, and energetic appearance. Powered by groundbreaking furnace biotechnology, its award-winning formulas with the exclusive Swiss Glacier Complex combine over 100 powerful natural active ingredients with leading clinical research. One of my favorite products from Neons is the Collagen Hyaluron Beauty Booster, which is a nutritional supplement that I've been taking for the last three years. As its name suggests, it contains high concentrations of marine collagen and hyaluronic acid, as well as multiple essential vitamins and minerals. It comes in a powdery mix and I drink a sachet of it every morning with water. And for me, this is the super easy beauty ritual that helps to boost not only my skin and hair, but also my bones, nails, and joints. It's 100% made in Switzerland, free from gluten, lactose, and sugar. So I hope you'll give it a try. You can find Neons online at neons.com. That is N-I-A-N-C-E.com. As listeners of my podcast, you can benefit from 15% discount by using the promo code thefounderspirit15 on neons.com. Again, that is N-I-A-N-C-E.com. So you co-founded ScanTrust in early 2014 with the inimitable Dr. Justin Picard, who is also the inventor of the core technology that's sitting behind the software platform. And your friendship, or shall I say the long distance love affair began over a decade ago uh, when you were working as an American businessman based in China. And Justin a Canadian scientist um, based in Switzerland. Um, tell us how you met, um, how the courtship began, and what brought the two of you together. Well, as most good things in life start, it started in a bar in Jakarta. That's the best way to start <laughs> a startup, in a bar. Yeah, and it never, it didn't start with anything related to Scantrust. We, we technically were working. We were at a conference. It was a, a World Economic Forum East Asia event in I guess it was back in 20, 2010 um, where we met and we were at our former companies at the time. And we initially had a discussion arguing about whose maple syrup was better, Vermont's or Quebec's. Um, 12 years later, we still have not um, aligned on this particular point, although we all know Vermont's <laughs> maple syrup is, is lower in volume, but better in quality. We, we hit it off pretty well on a personal level. Uh, and then we started to see each other on a conference circuit um, over the coming two years. And I started to learn more about the work 
he had been doing. He had been dedicated his whole life to stopping counterfeits and creating more transparency in the supply chain, which for me at that time, I was a resident in China. And, you know, Jennifer, you've lived there as well. So you know that as a consumer there, um, doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, in the middle, foreigner, local, that you're very concerned about what the products you're buying. And there's a tremendous amount of opaqueness Absolutely. in the supply chain. I was really interested by, you know, personally by what he was doing. And eventually over time, he, he left his, his former company that he was at and had this wonderful idea for a secure QR code technology, what we call a, a copy sensitive or copy proof QR code. Um, and at that point, I was smitten. Oh, he fell in love. Yeah, with QR codes, secure QR codes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the co-founder relationship is very much like a marriage. Yeah, I wouldn't say uh, a love there, although that helps, but there certainly has to be mutual respect. Uh, I think that's the basis for any successful relationship, whether it's a marriage or co-founders. Uh, and without a doubt, um, you know, Justin and I, we've had our disagreements at times. It hasn't always been footloose and fancy free, uh, but at the same time, even in those times where we've had our lows, there's been a, a strong level of mutual respect there. And I think that's the cornerstone of, of any relationship and certainly what's allowed us to work together for, for so long successfully together and, and continue to do so to this day. And so do you recall the moment when you first decided that you're going to do this? Was it like a tortured process for you? It wasn't instantaneous. I mean, what was instantaneous is when he described his idea for what he wanted to do and what he was working on, I immediately saw that this could be valuable because I knew that I, as a, as a consumer in China, I would use this technology every day. If I could just take out my smartphone and instantly scan a product to understand the authenticity and the origin of that product, yes, I would do that. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was uh, always um, a believer in that the solution could solve a very big problem. That's not just a China problem. It's a global problem. Uh, but initially, I was still at another company, um, and uh, Justin's idea was a very early stage. But I started to you know, help him out by um, just giving some basic commercial advising. And um, over time, this, um, you know, I, I started to get pulled in more and more, found that we worked um, very well together. Um, and then there was also a catalyst event where the company that I was got acquired or taken private, it was a, which was a good time for me to exit. I also got a little cash from it, not no fu money, <laughs> as people call it, but it was enough to uh, to take a chance on a startup. And so uh, at Dars aligned at that moment, late 2013, and then in early 2014, Scantrust was uh, um, founded by, by Justin and myself. Both of you were first time founders. Um. How do you think that may or may not have played out in your favor? There's definitely pros and cons to it. On the pro side, um, I, I find that sometimes when you do things for the first time, um, you're coming in with a blank canvas and, and no preconceived notions. And especially when you're creating a solution that is, is new to the market and doing something that hasn't been done before, I think that's very healthy. Forces you to develop a new playbook. And, um, and, and that, in a way, I think helps breed innovation. I think on the con side, although since day one, we have been moving forward to up and to the right, and we've been making progress um, day in, day out, we've reached a very successful level today. So we definitely have at times moved slower than we could have. And that comes from 
I think some inexperience in, in realizing how important certain things are. For example, focus as, as founders, very ambitious and dreamer type people, both Justin and I have a, a huge ambition for Scantrust because we're, we're also solving a large problem and dream and, and think, oh, this is how it can be. And there was many times where I think our focus was too broad and we were a mile wide and inch deep. And, you know, you, you can read a lot of blogs about founding SaaS startups and everyone tells you focus, 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 but it's like your parents telling you something when you're younger. Sometimes you just need to learn it the hard way yourself. And yeah, and I think if we had done a startup before, maybe we would have kept the ambition mm -hmm. long-term, had a little bit more focus in, in the early stage, and, and maybe we would have moved a little faster and then grown into those other ambitions. But I, without a doubt, looking back, there's some things that maybe I would have done slightly different. Are there any um, preconceived notion about doing a startup that, that, you know, that you had at the beginning? If you read just uh, the press releases out there, you think that startups are, are glorious and a one-way ticket to, to stardom and riches and, and spoils and everything's wonderful and your own boss. And I wouldn't say that I had that um, glittery view of, of startups. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough in my network to have um, several other close friends and associates who, who had gone through starting themselves. My dad himself was an entrepreneur mm -hmm. his whole life, you know, growing up. Um, I, I don't remember my dad ever having an office job. He constantly had his own businesses. I knew that it's something that's hard. And, and ultimately, I think that's the message I would have to any person who's thinking of becoming a founder or who has not been a founder before is um, make sure you're really uh, into what you're doing. It, it's it's going to take longer than you expect. Um, there's no quick pass. It comes with hard work. There are perks, of course, to being the boss or a founder. Um, but at the same time, especially early stage, the buck stops with you because there's no one else to do something. So there's a lot of commitment. There's a lot of late nights. There's a lot of weekends um, that go into to realizing um, your dream. So by this time, what were some of the important skill set that you brought to the company, whether it's from the basketball court or sitting at the poker table or from your last job? <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt, for better or worse, I never think that I'm going to fail. I always have the belief that I will ch achieve success, um, the belief that I'm going to win. Mm -hmm. um, and even if sometimes when I fail or don't win, um, I have the belief that get back and win the next time. I think that comes from my upbringing of playing sports from a very young age, being involved in team sports and seeing that, um, you know, when you put your best foot forward, that you have a great chance to win. Very often you can win. Um, but even when you do lose, there's learnings that comes from it. And guess what? The, there's a the next game, then you can go and win that one. And so that resiliency, I think, certainly was instilled with me um, through my many years in sports. And uh, that's one thing I definitely bring into my work life, um, Scantrust or, or elsewhere. Before you had raised the angel round, you, you had worked without pay for almost nearly two years. And it's also around this time that two other co-founders had decided to leave. Many um, fail at the beginning, never even get off the ground because the, the founders leave. Mm -hmm. This is the classic scenario. There were some other major snags that came along with that, which not sure that you're okay to talk about due to the confidentiality. When the initial team that you put together fall apart, 
right? What was going through your mind at the time? When you start off um, a journey with a group of people, um, you know, you, you have a mindset that this is the the team that's going to be able to, to take you to the, the next stage and, and achieve success. When someone decides to leave that journey, those two both happened within the first year. I think with one of them was in the first few months. It deflates you a little. You're at a low. At the end of the day, Justin and I, um, we still had each other. Maybe if I'm on my own and all the other co-founders leave, it would have been a different scenario, but we still had each other. Um, we still had the, the the passion, the fire, the belief, um, and that support infrastructure was still there. What we had also, which was very helped on during that time, was we'd already started to build up an advisory board. We had two or three really strong, talented advisors, people who had been there, done that, you know, had a little gray hair, not their first rodeo. Having that support network around, um, both from our advisor networks and then a personal support network to be a bouncing wall and, and get some feedback, really help put things in perspective. Because you in the thick of it, it's really easy to have the blinders on and having people around you who can put things in perspective makes a big difference. We were lucky enough, but also had the foresight that when we started this, we had a, a, an idea of a personal runway. The first almost two years, as you mentioned, was really self-funded. And some of these... Um, bumps along the road, which slowed us down in, in the beginning, hadn't taken that into account and had our own personal runway, it would have been really, really rough because we were not in a position to fundraise at that point when these events happened. Even though there was always a sense of urgency, we had enough time to be able to work through that and get allowed us to, to bring in some capital to then really start to build out the team. Eventually, you ended up raising in the seed round. That's right. Um, led by SOSV. With your VP of product, you basically ended up basing the, the, the software team out of China. You were also based in China at the time. Um, was there a reason for you to choose China and not Switzerland, where the company is headquartered? Yeah, it's a simple philosophy um, called follow the money. Our company is headquartered in Switzerland, for those who are unaware. When we started to get Scantrus going. I was based in China at the time, but the idea was I was going to move to Switzerland and I spent quite a bit of time there, still do to, to this day. Um, but what started happening is we started to talk to companies, um, not just companies based in Asia or divisions of China, but companies in, in Europe, in the US, were multinational companies who had quality brands that were susceptible to counterfeit, had challenges in, in the visibility in their supply chain, everyone's like, that's a really interesting solution. But you know, our China team would really like that or our Southeast Asia team. So I constantly, everything was pushing me towards China. It made sense since I was there already, um, uh, had uh, a network there. And uh, interestingly enough, our first, you know, our VP of hire a product was based in Shanghai as well. It made sense to to really build out um, and get off running there. And that ultimately ended up being the right decision. Even though China is probably only 20% of our revenue today, um, in the beginning, it was 100%, but it really allowed us to move quickly because it was um, a, a solution that was really needed in the market at that time. And because of my network living in China 10 years at that point, uh, I had access to quite a number of, of companies and decision makers, and we were able to, to get off the ground um, very quickly um, with some pilots, which, which really proved the value of our solution. Now I want to dig a little deeper into enterprise sales. 
And I think that enterprise sales is really something that we don't normally talk about or people are often unaware of, just how difficult it really is. You have to be very much aware of the, the, of the corporate politics at play. At the same time, you're pounding your chest and say, hey, take a chance on us. And I promise I'm not going to screw up. I'm not going to embarrass people or jeopardize people's careers at the company, despite being a little dinky startup. That's what my imagination. I've been on a couple of sales calls with you. That's my limited experience of what I think the process must have felt like Mm -hmm. at the beginning. So maybe tell us a little bit more, like what was that process like for you? I'm really curious what happens when you're a little dinky startup and you step into a corporate world. At the end of the day, you're mm-hmm. selling to a company, but you're really selling to people at the end of the day. It's, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's B2B, but it, it, like anything, it's, there's people involved. And enterprise sales, um, it has a lot of nuances without a doubt. And it's, it, it's beyond just having a great product. Um, it's not like this is the best product out there to solve the problem and it just gets bought like hotcakes. Hot it's it's not the case. You know, what I've learned with enterprise selling over the years um, is there is always multiple stakeholders that are involved and it's super key to map out the process and getting to know all the stakeholders that could be in the deal from key influencers to decision makers to internal champion. Being responsive to, to all the key concerns. I recall a, a call, a, a deal one time, we were arguing with people on the product side where you know we were selling to a Fortune 500 company um, and they had a security concern. And, and to be honest, this security concern really made no sense, but it didn't matter. That meant we needed to be concerned. You can't do everything, especially when you're a small company, um, and, and, but you need to be responsive to these, these concerns. It's a process. You, you have to be organized. You have to be diligent. Uh, and, and then ultimately, um, and this was paused a little during COVID, it's also a lot of in-person time. It, it's a slightly different world now. The, there's still a lot of in-person. It's more intentional. Um, but you need to be dedicated mm-hmm. to, to the process. When you're starting off as a company where you have no revenue, I think it's really important to to drill down on your ideal customer profile. You, long-term, there might be a, a group of customers that you can sell to, but initially you have to go to those early adopters. You have to find those companies that are are looking to innovate. And once you get those first few um, in, which are the hardest, it doesn't necessarily become easy, but it becomes easier. Um, you have reference points, you have credibility, and it, it, you start to create a brand. Um, in it. You still need to run that enterprise sales process and be organized and, and be diligent. Um, once you get those first few in the door, um, it does make that an, the initial knock on the door with new companies that much easier. How long did it take you to get to your first paid client? From when we technically founded ScanTrust to when we had our first um, paid client, it was close to two years. Um, from when we had a product we could actually sell, it was just a couple of months, actually. We were doing a lot of uh, evangelical work and outreach and, and had delays on, on getting our initial product out there, our MVP, um, with you. But once we did, we got our first clients fairly, fairly quick. You said it took you two years to get to the first client. Was that longer than you had thought it would take? Oh, yeah. No, hotcakes. Everyone, who doesn't want to secure QR code, uh, <laughs> especially those uh, facing counterfeit issues in, in Asia at the time? Um, you know, part of that is to do to my, my naivety and in, in thinking how easy it would be to, to build out uh, 
uh, a solution, an MVP version, especially considering the complexity of what we were we were selling. We were integrating secure digital identities into products, which means we're, we're integrating into production processes, packaging and printing processes. It just takes time and you need to, to build up a a solution that allows for that to happen. We also reached delays in our development process uh, along the way, as I highlighted earlier. But yeah, it was a lot longer than I expected. Once we got that first one, things really started to pick up steam. The process to get to product market fit. This notion of iterate, test, and pivot is a constant loop of, you know, collecting information, listening to feedback, and then based on that, you respond by refining your sales pitch, you evolve your solution, and the next day you start the whole process over again. What was the process like for you at ScanTrust? I wouldn't say we went in with any sort of dedicated process, um, although we've evolved into one. But what we did have had since day one is, is a philosophy, um, and that philosophy is to listen. Do you have a solution that um, just on a very quick elevator pitch is attractive enough, interesting enough, and compelling enough to it gets our foot in the door? Um, and that has been the case since day one, even before we had a product. So we've been lucky enough where we've been able to have many, many discussions with customers and potential customers you know, about not just our solution, but more so what are the challenges they're, they're trying to solve? How ideally would they like to solve it? And one thing I, we've been incredibly good at at ScanTrust is listening to our customers, taking that feedback, and then having a process where a really good um, you know, communication flows internally, and then taking and being able to actually act and design um, solutions that meet those problems. And that's one thing that I think that we've done exceptionally well uh, at ScanTrust and continue to execute on and has ultimately allowed us to to create a product that the needs of, of the market. I see from your website, you have a very impressive list of clients like Unilever, ExxonMobil, Dow Chemical, and foreign, uh, some sovereign governments like Argentina and Chile. So congratulations for getting That's there. Right. Um, now I'm going to take you back a little bit, um, just a few years into ScanTrust. Um, when you first started, you were the chief revenue officer. You were not the CEO. Justin was the CEO. And then after three years, you stepped up to the CEO role. Justin transitioned into his current role as the chief technology officer. By no means uncommon for startups, but it's still a really delicate and tricky situation. It's the type of things that would pull companies apart or at least one of the founders leave. I I'm curious, did you always know that you wanted to be the CEO from the beginning or was it something that came about after a few years? Uh, Justin did start out as the CEO and as a CRO, as you mentioned, but we also had also very clear understandings of what our roles and responsibilities were. Um, uh, that's not to say my role did not change from when I was the chief revenue officer to the CE, CEO. It certainly did. Um, but at the same time, Justin and I understood our, our circle of competencies, uh, to, to use a famous, uh, Buffett and, uh, Charlie Munger, uh, phrase. We, we've never been far off that. And Justin was the initial one who was driving this idea. Um, you know, and I, I joined him. Uh, on this journey at the beginning, um, the idea to, uh, behind a secure QR code was his. He also had um, some really strong personal 
you know, goals that he wanted to accomplish in terms of getting out of his his comfort zone, which I think was very healthy and mm-hmm. has made him a better CTO to to Scantrus. He had primarily been in research and technical roles his whole career. As we went along in the journey, there was never a moment where, you know, there was a threat from the board or, or I think it, it was a natural progression. In fact, Justin was the one who came to me with the idea. It was a pretty simple and easy conversation and we, we both agreed. And it comes back to really knowing what your circle of competency um, is and, and where you can add most value to the company. And I think we ever really got off of that. There was really never any rocky um, part of this journey for us, um, I think, which speaks volumes to the relationship Justin and I have. You're on the road to fundraising again. What qualities are you looking for in your investor? Yeah, I've always looked at this. There's two aspects um, of this. One is related to the specific stage uh, of company that you were at and where you will be. Ultimately, you'll, you want to have investors and shareholders who have experience and can provide value for the challenges you're facing. And, and that those challenges will um, evolve over time. I think the second one is to come back to a recurring theme. Things always take a lot longer than you think. You're getting into a very long relationship, uh, especially when you're you're starting off the early stage. So you you definitely want someone who has strong conviction in what you are doing and the problem you're trying to solve beyond financial potential of this company. I mean, investors need to get a financial return. So you avoid that. And that's, I think it's healthy to have for B2B companies, especially B2B companies that are selling into enterprise. I think it's also very healthy to have people with a, a much longer term view. Um, we were we, we had a great uh, initial lead to our seed round, which was SOSV. You know, SOSV is one of the most active uh, seed investors in the world, typically usually only after Y Combinator in, in size. Um, and it's it, for many years, it was it still is to a degree operating as an evergreen fund. They're in for the long haul and um, having investors who, you know, have the right um, time horizon. Um, in terms of when they need to exit. It's a, fir- a, a very fair question to, to ask, to understand really what you know type of pressure they might be on that rolls down to you um, from their LPs or our partners. We're, at, we're coming into a growth stage um, of, of, of our journey. We've achieved product market fit. Um, we're scaling up our, our venture. So obviously having investors who, who have deep pockets will be able to potentially add more um, beyond this initial investment as we move forward and deploy more capital as we, as we grow is important. Having um, investors who have a portfolio companies that have gone through a similar journey and experience to us um, and, and we can get access to that is very important to our consideration. There's one other aspect that has really changed a lot. Over the last few years, there was just a tremendous amount of capital that got deployed into SaaS businesses. Valuations were pretty high. And I think there was a point where both founders and investors were starting to think, oh, this is easy what we're doing. We throw a little money in in now, and a few months later, we're doing another round, and valuations on paper are going well. And and of course, that there's there's a tremendous amount more spend on the cloud in general by enterprises big and small. There emerged quite a number of investors over the last um, few years who maybe um, throughout playbooks that were previously in place. And right now, founders need to do to really understand what type of fund is investing in it, especially those who are looking for 
investors that will be with them along for the journey and whether it's leading or contributing to the next round and or being there when they might need a bridge before they get to the next round when uh, you really need to do a little bit more due diligence. What happened to them with the huge correction is in the market over the past six to nine months. Yeah, I think that's a really good point there because you want to make sure that they can, they will support you or they're able to support you in the follow-up rounds as well. Because it's when you start, you have meetings with VCs, they all want to know who's on your cap table. So having the right cap table is really, really important. Let's talk about building up a team. In a world where everybody's trying to attract talent, how do you make your startup stand out? It's hard. The talent wars here, especially over the past few years we just talked about where all this capital was deployed. Companies with a lot of money in their coffers looking to hire talent. For me, I think it, it always starts with our mission. You know, we, we, since day one, have been a very mission-driven um, company. And nearly everyone <laughs> that we've hired, what are you trying to solve? If we are successful in our journey here, you know, w- what is the outcome? Well, what I've found is that trying to bring more safety, security, and integrity to the products in our lives really resonates with company, uh, with, with potential hires, um, and certainly our employees. Like if you're not authentic about, people realize that pretty quickly, um, especially when you go through an interview process where they're not just talking to me, they're talking to f- different people within the company during that process and company that is not aligned and people can can pick up on that. And uh, I think that's a, a strong aspect we have. Hiring is just like fundraising where it you just got to put time into it. I wouldn't call it a chore um, because you know it's the most impactful thing you can do is the people that you bring into your company. Sometimes you find a great candidate very easily, but most of the time, you know, you really need to run a, a dedicated process. Uh, you you need to put out word through various channels. Um, you need to take the time to thoroughly go through and and vet the candidates. Are you still interviewing every single candidate that the company hires? I do. Some of them, it's just the final interview, and it's more of just like a culture interview, like the sales organization um, involved much earlier in the process. Um, but yes, I, I interview every single person. We'll see how long I can continue to do this. But uh, you know, I, I love being able to have contact with future scan trusters as early as possible. What are some of the specific qualities that you're looking for in the interview process? Well, I think it's different for each role. What, what you're hiring for uh, and what you need out of it. Mm. But there, there certainly are um, a few, at least for, for me, a few constants in, in any type of hire. And the first and foremost for me is curiosity. I really like to dive in someone's professional life or their personal life that they have shown interest in something. <laughs> Maybe it's just one thing, something where they really dive into. Um, and it shows that they like to challenge themselves, that they're, they're looking to learn more and to expand their horizons. I find if someone has curiosity, a desire to continue to learn, that even if they don't have all of their aspect that we're looking for, they will, will make things happen. The second thing that I look for, and I think this is so important in early stage companies where it's a roller coaster, is resiliency, or some people might call it grit. Um, this can be a little bit more difficult to, 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 to interview for. We have so many ups and downs, even though we've historically been going up and to the right, it's not linear. It's ups and downs. Sometimes in the, in the same hour, I f- feel like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. And also like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. Why did I start? You know, that sometimes happens in the same hour. 
And so you, you're going to need people who have that resiliency um, and that grit to times are tough to be like, you know what, let's just roll up our sleeves and, and get shit done. And ultimately you find that you, you get out of those lows pretty quickly. And so we, I, I always want that type of mindset on the team and no matter what role we have. And is that the magic of ScanTrust? The magic of ScanTrust is our people. Um, we have a really cool secure QR code and a great technology platform. But, you know, that was built by our people. Um, and those are the ones who are passionate about it, going out and sharing it with the world, working with our customers to make them successful. Um, so, yeah, the people are without a doubt the magic. Where can people find ScanTrust? Well, start off with ScanTrust.com. If you don't know us, go check us out. If you're working for a company or have a company that has a physical product, um, I guarantee you it's uh, worth checking us out. Um, we're pretty strong on LinkedIn. Uh, as well. We put out a lot of content there. I'm on LinkedIn for anyone who's listening out there who wants to talk more or has some questions um, about running a B2B SaaS business. I'm more than happy to share my experiences. Uh, just go ahead on LinkedIn, look up Nathan J. Anderson. We're now coming to the end of our interview, and we always end every podcast with a quote. For this episode, I have a quote by John Wooden the American basketball coach, the wizard of Westwood. Success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It's courage that counts. Wow, fantastic quote. I, I, I love that quote and um, words, words to live by for sure. Thanks, Jennifer. Really, really enjoyed this and uh, thanks for having me on. Good luck to you, Nathan, to ScanTrust and to continuing your entrepreneur journey. Thanks for joining us today. What was the craziest thing that happened to you in China? Okay, my, my craziest moment in China. Oh man, uh, there's so many uh, crazy moments in, in China <laughs> over the years that I could choose from. But I, I guess since this is a, a business podcast, I'll, I'll make it a crazy business moment. And it goes back to when I was working at Fusher Copperweld, which was at the time a, a public company on NASDAQ, and I was serving as secretary um, to the board of directors as one of my roles. And we were having our annual shareholder meeting, and we decided to have it in Hainan, which is the su a southern tropical island, as, as you know, um, of China, um, the southernmost point of China, and a beautiful place to, to visit. And we decided to have the, the annual meeting there. And as secretary of the board, I went and did some advance scouting to make sure the hotel and the, the setup was proper for, for all the attendees. And the morning of I was taking my flight out, my chairman and CEO, the big boss, the Laoban, as they call it in China, uh, Mr. Fu, uh, called me and said, hey, I, I need you to meet a business associate um, while I'm there uh, as well. And it made it seem like it was related to Fushi Copperweld and gave me the contacts. I said, sure, no problem. I'll have time. I'll, I'll meet them on, on Tuesday. Ended up being um, the business associate was a mayor of a small village in the center up in kind of the mountains of, of Hainan who was um, setting up a spider farm. So they had poisonous... Um, spiders, really big spiders, and they were basically harvesting the venom from these these spiders <laughs> to um, 
then take and put into medicines and various chemicals. It's very, you know, just a small amount is worth a lot. And Mr. Fu was contemplating a personal investment. So what his, you know, by go talk to a business associate, he basically had meant for me to go kick the tires of this investment. And I was out at this spider farm in the middle of nowhere and up in the mountains of Hainan. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't really well organized, let's say. It's, it wasn't an efficient operation. Um, and they, I could see, I didn't know at the time that the spiders were poisonous, but you, they showed me the, the farm. It kind of looked like a chicken coop and there were spiders running in cages, out of cages, all around, around us. Nobody seemed to be so concerned, so I wasn't that concerned. But then after lunch, when there was quite a bit of drinking Chinese baijiu going on, they said, oh, you want to see what these spiders really do? I'm like, yeah, sure. And they brought up a cow and had, they put a spider on it and the spider eventually bit the cow and within 30 minutes, the cow was dead. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know, there, there's a lot more details in this and I could go on. It's a, it's a hilarious story. Um, but, you know, it really summarizes China in one, uh, one simple um, phrase for me, expect the unexpected. <laughs>